Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to be studying this this evening, verse 13 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal um, indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That describes exactly what happened to us when Jesus died and when we received his free gift. He forgave us and wiped out all our sins. And these next songs that we're going to be doing between now and our message time are going to be focusing on what Jesus did for us. So I encourage you to keep that in mind as we worship him and give him thanks for all that he's done. If you're able, let's stand together and worship our God who is alive.
given and you completely set us in right standing with you and so we worship you this evening we thank you King Jesus that you are on the throne this evening perfect in love here you are robed in majesty and light
Bibles to Colossians as we continue to study God's Word. And uh, last week, we took a moment to pray for uh, one of the people that attends our church, and we were praying for her miracle, and she got her miracle. Uh, it was going to be one of two miracles. Either God was going to heal her through surgery, or God was going to take her home to be with Him, and God saw fit to heal her through the surgery. And so that's a huge yay, God. And then I heard just before our service uh, tonight that we had a uh, testimony of another miracle of someone who was diagnosed with cancer and then got a different doctor and went and looked at that doc and the doc said, you don't have cancer. In fact, you never had cancer. Yet the first doc said, for sure you did. And so when we think about some of these things, God still does miracles. God does some amazing things. And... One of the challenges is questioning God, questioning God's ability, capability, and, you know, coming to a place where you go, well, you know, I don't know, is, is God enough for me? Is, is, is my faith enough? Is Jesus enough? Is the simple gospel enough? Paul, in writing to the church in Colossae, is trying to defend the gospel. And in our life and in our world today, so many times we overcomplicate things, don't we? Life can be really super simple. But, but we tend to overcomplicate things, and when it comes to faith, we can really overcomplicate it. Little children can believe that Jesus is God, and little children can have faith. And Jesus would say, unless you have the faith of a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a simple gospel that we believe in, and that simple gospel tells us that Jesus is enough. And the second element that we'll take a look at tonight is that in Christ, you're complete. There isn't anything that you need to add to the gospel, nor is there anything that you have to add to your holiness, because Jesus has done it all. But the problem with false teachers is they come in... And they start saying, well, you know, you're not good enough. You need to do a little bit more. Or you're, or you're not quite measuring up. You need to do this. Or you need to do that. Or you need to add all of these things. And that's dangerous. And so as we pick up here in, in Paul's letter to the church of Colossae, he's really ministering this message to try to help us to understand the riches of the gospel. The gospel is kind of like a gold mine. You look at it at the top and there's just a bunch of dirt. But you've got to really work at it. A couple weeks ago, um, I think maybe it was last week, and we went to Boys Outback. and 
couple of the guys had got out gold pans there on the Nehalem River. And they get a shovel, and I was watching them, and they get a shovel full of dirt and black sand, and, and, and one of the guys was saying, well, you know, you've got to look here, and you've got to look at this and that and the other. And they sat there, and I watched them for like an hour and a half with a pan of dirt, sifting it around, looking and looking and looking. And you see that? And I'm like, I don't see anything. But they were looking for that. But it takes work. The value of the gospel is, is really understanding and mining out those precious things, the riches of the gospel that we have. And the more we grab a hold of the riches and see the riches of the gospel, the more firm the foundation that we have. The problem with many believers, believers is they don't dig down deep enough. They just have a superficial faith. And, and so Paul wants us to understand that. So we're going to dive right in. In chapter 1, beginning with verse 24, verses 24 to 29 is one continuous sentence in the Greek. Paul, Paul was not really, he, he was a very smart guy, but when it came to like writing letters, he would just talk really fast. And I, I imagine the guy that's writing for him says, slow down, Paul. So in verses 24 to 29, there is no punctuation. There's really no stops. It kind of goes all the way through. And really, as he's rejoicing about who we are in Christ, he says this, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in the filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. Now of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me on your behalf so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifest to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is, note, the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Underline that. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. Paul gets excited about the riches in Christ, because it was the riches of Christ that, that he discovered, the riches that led him out of a religion and into a relationship. And he's rejoicing, first and foremost, of the sufferings. And, you know, Paul's kind of weird that way. In verse 24, he says, I'm rejoicing over my sufferings. We don't like to suffer. How many of you guys have liked the heat? That's not fun. It hasn't been good. Air conditioning is great. Suffering, not so much. And so Paul says that he felt a sense of joy because, not because he was suffering, but he was suffering on behalf of Christ. He was sharing in the afflictions that Jesus went through. He was being connected in this in the suffering. Paul is writing this letter from a jail cell for preaching the gospel. He was, this is one of the prison epistles that we studied. and He's chained to a Roman guard for preaching the gospel. And, and he's sitting there next to a, a Roman guard and he's praising God for this affliction being under house arrest. And it wasn't by surprise. He was told by God in Acts 9 that he will suffer many things for the gospel's sake. Now, Paul knows about suffering because he caused a lot of suffering. He was a guy that persecuted Christians. 
for their faith and, and, and put them through the ringer, trying to get them to turn from their faith. But yet, now he is on the other end. And with that, there's something unique about Paul. He had a pastor's heart. He had a pastor's heart for the Gentile churches. Why? Because as a Jew, he had pushed the Gentiles out to the margins and treated them so horribly. Thinking down that a, Jew, that a Gentile could never be saved. And never benefit from the gospel at all. That can never benefit from these things. And, and interesting enough, Jesus not only chose Paul, but he chose him to be an ambassador to the Gentiles. To the very people that he would, would look down on. And God changed his perspective. In Acts chapter 9, 15 and 16, says this, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Note, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And so he counted a joy because suffering for Paul meant he was on the right track in ministry. It meant he was doing the right thing. And he was going out to kings and he would do that as a prisoner within that. For what purpose? To fill up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, what does he mean? Was the cross... Not enough? Is Paul saying, well, I need to suffer so that it completes the work of the cross? Never. What he was saying in this, that in the preaching the, the gospel, it was his part of the gospel message. Jesus has his part. His part is to die on the cross, make atonement for sin, and to rise again. Paul's part which is not what Jesus' lane was, but Paul's lane is, and the church's, is to evangelize the message of the cross. To fill up what was lacking. And what was lacking was the broadcasting of the message of the gospel. Do you realize when you share the gospel, you are filling up and completing what is necessary for the cross to have effect? People need to hear the gospel message. And, and to be able to... Bring, a, bring that about, and it's a partnership. And suffering as part of the body of Christ is just like Jesus suffered in the crucifixion. The church is going to suffer in the broadcasting of the gospel. But we don't like to suffer, so what do we tend to do? We don't say anything. Why? Because I want everybody to like me. I don't want to share the gospel because it might be offensive. I, I don't tell people the truth. That your sin is separating you from God. And that our sins can't be paid for by good works. That, that you have to put your trust in Jesus who died for you. And he paid the penalty for those sins. And everyone that trusts in him will live that life everlasting. Remember the gospel message that I shared with you last week. Paul was made a servant in order to serve the church. And so now it's in verse 25-27. Of this church I was made a minister... And, and the word minister in that stewardship, it, it literally means house steward. If this is the house of God, Paul's the manager. If the gospel is something that belongs to God, you are a steward of the gospel. How's your stewardship of the gospel? You have the gospel. God's given it to you. Are you sharing it? 
Are you a good manager of that which God's given you as an evangelist, as a shepherd? I hope so. We try to in every aspect, even as a church. What are outreaches for? Outreaches are for opportunities to share the gospel. Whether it's a, a women's movie night, or it's a, it's a boys' outback, or a men's Bible study, or it's a funeral. Do you know you can share the gospel at the funerals? And we do. To be able to share that gospel. We are stewards of the gospel. And we're called to reveal the plan. Verses 26 to 27, he says, This is the mystery that has been hidden and in the past. What was Paul speaking about mystery? The word mystery is mysterion. It means that which was once hidden is now revealed. What was the thing that was hidden? That Gentiles could be saved just like Jews. They thought that was unfathomable. How could a Gentile ever be saved like a Jew? God is the God of the Jews, not the God of the Gentiles. But yet Paul brings out the gospel message that says that the gospel is for the Jew and the Gentile. And it wasn't really fully understood. When you think about salvation, did you really understand salvation when it was first mentioned to you? No. Why? Because it was a mysterion. When it was first mentioned to you about Jesus and dying on the cross for your sins and, and God and all of that, you didn't get it. Why? Because it was hidden. How was it revealed? Two things. Somebody spoke it, and the Holy Spirit brought it to life in your heart. And so with that, the gospel needs feet. The gospel needs a voice. Paul says, I am the voice of this gospel. It's the mystery that was once hidden is now revealed. He was very specific. In fact, he describes it in Ephesians 3, 6-9. He says, to be specific, this mysterion, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister, according to, note, the gift of God's grace which was given to me, according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, note, the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration or the deliverance of the, the mystery, the household stewardship of this mystery, which for all ages has been hidden for God, who created all things. This unbelievable aspect. You think about this. What's the mystery? The mystery is you don't have to obey man-made works to be saved. That you're saved by grace, not of works. That's a mystery. How does that happen? How does it happen that God saves you by grace? Because it's one of the riches that's mined up through the gospel. You cannot add anything to your salvation. It's complete. You're saved by a grace gift. That's complete. Paul was amazed that Jesus, this Jew that was born of Mary, son of a carpenter, was the Son of God that died on the cross. He couldn't believe it, but when he met Him face to face, the mystery was revealed. That happened at His salvation. Do you remember when you first saw Jesus? When you first met Him? The mystery revealed. When God's Word, you read a passage and it comes to life. By the power of God. 
And it's a gospel of grace that's given. It's a mystery of grace that's given. Who in this room or watching online is really worthy of salvation? None of us. It's a mystery of grace where God looks at you and says, you are valuable. I love you despite all of the things that you've ever done. I will continue to love you despite all the things you will ever do. And that there is nothing that can separate that love that I have from you. There's nothing that will change it within this. One of the treasures, and understand this, is at salvation you are placed into Christ. God the Father cannot love God the Son any more than He already does. God the Father cannot love you any more than He already does because you are placed into Christ. And He loves you just as much as His Son. So when you are placed into Christ, by His grace, that's solid. And that can't be changed. And so we've been placed in Christ positionally. And just in the same way that Christ is glorified in the Father in heaven, so are we. You know, here's something that will blow your mind. In God's eyes, in the Father's eyes, as He sees you, He sees you completed and in heaven already. But I'm not there yet. Well, the present reality is not caught up with God's eternal perspective. And how does that work? I don't know. But God doesn't see me as the sinner. God sees me as the saint. God does not see me as the knucklehead. God sees me as His Son. Because I'm in Christ. I'm already seated in the heavens. Because that sin penalty has been paid for. And that's one of the treasures of the Gospel. That that we're already alive in Christ. You know eternal life began the day that you accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior? You're already there. You already have it. You're already in eternal life. Why? Because you will never die. You will never be separated from, from God. And that's eternal death. The difficulty is that, that while you're eternally alive, you're still stuck in this body, trapped in what Paul calls bondage of this flesh. Another aspect in verses 28 to 29, Paul proclaims that this gospel has placed us in so that we'll know that we're complete in Christ. One of the things that's important, as he says in here in 28-29, he says, we proclaim him, note, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom for this purpose, that we may present every man complete. Question. When do you usually question your salvation? When do you usually get down on yourself and depressed and in the dumps about where you are in Christ? I can tell you one of the times when you're separated from the body of Christ and the teaching of His Word. When you separate yourself from God's teaching in the presence of His Holy Spirit, Satan comes in with lies and he wants you to believe those lies. Paul says, as the servant of God, it is our job to admonish and teach people so that they'll understand the fullness of this message. This idea of admonish, 
is the first step of preaching the gospel. And it's really to be able to preach that message. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1-2, it says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you a testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except this, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. To be able to know people that, to admonish them, to tell them and say, look it, your sin is separating you from God. That's an admonishment. It's a correction. One of the things that the Gnostics were doing is they were trying to move people away with fancy speech. Paul says, you need to know the truth. And it's not based on a religious creed. It's based on a relationship. The gospel is very, very simple. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for your sin. Was buried. Three days later, rose again. And all that put their faith and trust in Him as Lord and Savior will be saved. That's the simple gospel message. We don't need to be fancy about it. We don't need to work up some kind of great speech. What we need to do is tell people the truth in plain English. And the whole idea of admonishing is is to get the sinner that's separated from God to be connected with God. That's admonishing. You say, well, wait a minute, Gary, what does that mean? That means you go to the person that is a practicing alcoholic and saying, look, God loves you, but you're living in rebellion because you are an alcoholic rebelling against God. Or the person that's, that is, is a, a cheater or a liar or whatever the case is, whatever their sin is. We don't want to call sin, sin anymore, though, do we? We don't want to admonish people. Why? Well, one, it might hurt their feelings. Two, it might not be politically correct. But if you really love them, reveal their condition. Reveal their condition because if you don't, they're never going to hear the message of truth. We don't need to water down the gospel. We need to make it clear. We need to call sin, sin the way that God sees sin. And then having called sin, sin, Paul says the second part is instructing people in the Word of God for that sin to be dealt with. And, and teaching, which is technically a, an orderly presentation. I meet with a number of different people discipling them. Discipling is teaching them. I am with one individual. I am working on 8-16. I'm, I'm between the 16th and the 24th week, meeting every week, going through the basics of Christianity <coughs> to be able to teach and instruct. Wednesday morning Bible study. Men, you should be there. It is, it is a thing. We started Revelation two weeks ago. We're still on verse 1. But we're having some really deep conversation, teaching, presenting biblical truth, and, and challenging one another. And we're, and we're mining out not just the grace of God out of the gospel, but we're mining out of the, the Bible the wisdom of God, learning about it, to be able to grow in it. Paul would say to have a higher knowledge or a greater wisdom of God because it's the Word of God. And you need to study the Word of God for what goal? Verse 29, to become a mature Christian. If you're not growing in the Lord, you're dying. 
You need to be growing. And I really appreciate you all coming on Wednesday nights and going deeper. Because we do go deeper. Go a lot deeper than we do on Sunday mornings. We teach on Sunday mornings. We really teach on Wednesday nights. And going deeper in the Word. And the goal of Christianity is to have a deeper relationship. Christianity is not about having a, a good life or a happy life. But the goal of Christianity is having a godly life. On Sunday, we're going to do Joshua chapter 8. One of the things that we're going to see in, in the end of Joshua 8 is Joshua is going to, on stones, he's going to write the law. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, he's going to read the law. <clears throat> you, you think standing when I read on Sunday morning is a long time? Imagine standing for the whole book of Deuteronomy. Why? Because he wanted them to know the law. To be able to live the law. We need to study the Word of God within this. Paul goes on, and, and having had this big long sentence now in verses uh, chapter 2, 1 through 5, he really declares his passion for the believers to be united. Notice, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are in Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance. There again, riches. Full assurance and understanding resulting in true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. The second thing that Paul is working hard to do is that the church would be uni united in Christ. So if God sees us seated in Christ, if God sees us as his, his children in Christ and perfected in Christ, the other aspect that's super dangerous to the body of Christ is division. What happens when, when one person says, well, this is truth and this is my truth. The other person says, well, this is truth and this is my truth. Oh, and you're okay to believe your truth and I'm okay to believe my truth. And neither one of them are relevant or true from Scripture. What do you have? Division. Heresy. Bad theology. All of these things. He's encouraging this church to be united in doctrine and in wisdom, but more importantly, in love. In love. I was speaking with somebody um, last week. Made the comment, I don't like organized church. I don't go to church. I don't believe in organized church. I believe in God, but I don't believe in organized church. I said, really? I said, do you know what the, the word church really means? No. I said, the word church is ecclesia. It means those that are called out. The word church, ecclesia, is not a building. It is a people. It's not a building. It's a people. So well, I don't like an organized church. And I said, well, I don't like organized religion but I do believe that God has called us all to be in relationship with one another 
And different groups and people live in different relationship one to another in structure. We could have church and not have four walls. We could go outside, although I don't want to because it's not air conditioned. But we could go out in the park. When Jesus called out the church, there was no church building. In fact, you don't even find a church building until the first century A.D. They were all meeting in homes. The church of Colossae were home groups that were all meeting in homes. It wasn't a big church that was in that. But the one thing that they had that was most dangerous... And, and the thing that it needed to be challenged was their love. They had a love for one another. But the world wanted to come in and break down that love for one another. And it, it would challenge them. And we saw that within the church of Corinth when they stopped loving each other. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1.10, it says this, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. The church of Corinth had developed these factions and, and not loving each other and, and cliques and divisions and all of these different things that were there. They didn't have a building that they were in. It was the city. And so there was one house against the other house and against the other house. Now we kind of have that with denomination against this denomination against this denomination. But what would it be like if the body of Christ really came together in love and the centrality of the gospel. Second Tuesday of the month, there's a number of local pastors. We all get together and we pray for each other. Do they worship differently? Sure they do. We all do. But it's interesting because we do have a common core, a common element, and that is the love of Christ that binds our hearts together. Laodicea was not far away and was part of the circle of churches. We've been to the town of Laodicea. We've seen that was there. Paul was writing in order that the Colossae, which wasn't very far away, would be united with Laodicea within that. That they would understand the riches and the fullness of the riches that we could have. The spiritual wisdom, the knowledge, the inspiration, the Holy Spirit. When you get believers together, amazing things happen. As the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of one to another and knitting our hearts together within that. And there's a diversity in the body of Christ, but there should not be divisions within that. Paul says that we would all discover Jesus, that Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. And the wisdom that comes from Him. Some people say, well, what's God like? God's like Jesus. Okay, today people will say, what's God like? And if you say, well, he's like Jesus, then the church should be like Jesus. The church should be like Jesus. Why? You should be Jesus with skin on to the world. As Jesus was skin on of the Father to represent him, to mine out those wisdom, to be in that relationship. And as I said, there's diversity in gifts and abilities and all of that. But they all come to work together. Paul would write in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, he says, And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Note, for the equipping of the saints for what? The work of service to what? The building up of what? The body of Christ. 
until when? We all attain the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man and to the measure and the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Are we doing that? I would say here at WCF, yes, we are. As good as we could be? No. Do we still need to get better at it? Yep. But we have Sunday school teachers, nursery workers, women's ministry leaders, men's ministry leaders, worship team people, ushers and greeters and servants and all of these different people, missionaries, evangelists, all working together to build up WCF? Absolutely not. Build up the body of Christ. The body of Christ. And church with the big C. And then, then, Jesus brings wisdom to man. Because we pray as a, as a unit. One of the greatest things you can do is become part of the prayer team. We have a group of people that are passionate to pray. i got a gal that is praying for me all the time. In fact, she's probably praying for me right now. And, and, and she'll call me and say, you know, Pastor, I, I want you to know I prayed for you today. And it encourages me to know that, that while I'm up here giving the Word, I've got a prayer warrior that's praying over me, and on Sundays we have that. We need to be able to be in that place. But how do we get there? Know the Word of God. And then apply it. And then share it with other people. Question. Who are you giving the Gospel to? I challenge you. I challenge you. One person every day. Find one person every day. Do you believe God would have you share the Gospel with at least one person every day? I believe so. One person every day. You either evangelize them or you disciple them. One person every day. Be able to share the gospel, share his teaching. And with doing that, then we are all working for the same goal. In verses 4 and 5, Paul warns, though, the church. He says, I say to you that no one will delude you with a persuasive argument in the body, nevertheless, that I am with you in spirit. What was Paul's concern? Paul's concern was the fact that if the Word of God is not being taught to people on a regular basis, then false teachers would come in and delude them or lie to them. Are there deceptive people in the world today that want to steer you away from the truth of God's Word? Absolutely. I read on my, my uh, internet feed today about a teacher that lost their job because they were standing up for the truth concerning a social topic that was just horrendous. Lost their job. We should be praying for our teachers. Public schools are going to be starting. Regular private schools are going to be starting. What's being taught in the school? Lies that will delude our children from the truth. Well, what can I do about it, you say? Here's what you can do. Go down to your school district and volunteer to be part of a reading group for those kids. They would love to have people come in and just read and help kids read. They would love to. I know St. Helens, Scott over there, Stockwell, has said, yes, we would love for that. To be able to do that. Read to your kids, your grandkids, neighborhood kids. Teach them the Word of God so that they will be trained up. Awanas is starting up. Do you know that, that on Awanas we've got close to 70 some odd kids that are coming? And these are kids from the community, not necessarily from our church and not even families from our church. We're giving them the Word of God. 
Why? Because we're equipping them because they have to go to the battlefield of the public school system. We need to do that. The servant of God needs to know the Word of God, teach the Word of God, and also be able to spot heretical teaching to be able to do that. Can you do that? If someone comes up to you and says, hey, you know, Jesus came, but He only came in spirit. He never really came as man. Could you refute that? You should be able to. Within that. Jesus really didn't physically rise again. He only did it spiritually. Could you refute that? You should be able to. That's an essential of the faith. Deceivers are going to come in and they come in with these new truths. I heard a guy today, we were talking in our men's day, and one of the guys was saying that there was a pastor that was going around saying, you should not, you should not use a modern day Bible because all modern day Bibles, regardless of the translation, translation, is from the devil. I have the only translation. Now, is there a danger when somebody comes up and says, I have the only truth? Absolutely. And there will be people that come knocking on your door. They say, hey, look it. Bible's good, but I got another book that will help you understand the Bible. Do you need to listen to them? Nope. They all talk to you. Not about your book, but I'll talk about the book. And have that conversation with them. That won't go very far. I tried it. They ran away. Paul was encouraging the churches to be stable within this and, and be self-disciplined in their faith. And that's what we need to do. He goes on in, in verses 6 to 15, talking about how important it is to mine out the truth to God, the gold and the wisdom and, and of the gospel, to be able to be in unity together, but also to live that fulfilled life within this. Look at verses 6, um, I'm sorry, 6 to 15. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so also walk in him, having been firmly rooted now, being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. There it is again. According to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him is all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Him, and the Him is Christ, you have been made complete. And He is the head over all the rules of authority. And in Him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh from the circumcision of Christ. And having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith and the working of God who raised Him up from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions and having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the degrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. When we take a look at this life, if you notice, it was either with him or in him multiple times. Did you catch how many times Paul said that? Why? 
because everything that has to do that pertains to life is centered on Christ. But deceivers are going to try to separate you from that. They're going to try to separate you from Christ. They're going to try to separate you from the fullness of life in Christ. That's why Paul said, I only preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because that's all you need. But a lot of people get all wrapped around the axle and they want to add to these things. Do you realize that every true believer already has everything that they need for life? You say, Carrie, I don't feel very fulfilled. Well, you are. The problem is you're not accessing it. You're not, you're, you're, not, you're not living that fulfilled life. God's given you everything. It'd be kind of like having like an amazing car. BMW, I don't care. Ferrari. Sitting in your driveway, all gassed up. No, the Ferrari is not an electric car. God forbid that should ever happen. In your garage, you got this Ferrari. All gassed up, primed and ready to go. And you go out and you sit in that Ferrari and you sit in that seat. And you never open the garage door, you never stick the key in, you never turn it over and you never take it on the road. What good is it? I got a Ferrari. What good is it? That's the Christian that never ever accesses the power, the blessing, the fulfillment of being in Christ. Being in Christ means living the fulfilled life. There are so many people that are walking around going, Stop it. Live the fulfilled life in Christ. Jesus did not save you so that you sit around groaning and complaining. It's the gospel that saved you for purpose. And based on this purpose and the work, you get to be part of something bigger than yourself. The Gnostics were going around and they were discrediting or trying to discredit the gospel and Jesus. The human person, the Messiah, and everything that's all part of it. They were trying to take Jesus out of the picture. Well, if you remove Jesus out of the picture of the gospel, you don't have a gospel, do you? There's no power, is there? It's just an empty religion. Jesus is the centrality of the gospel. And within this, knowing the word of God to keep you from getting tossed around. Ephesians 4.14 says this, As a result, we are no longer children tossed to and fro where every wave carries us and every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. In other words, Paul says, find your life in Christ so you're no longer a victim. There's something that's weird that's happened in our world today where this victim mentality has taken over, hasn't it? Everybody's the victim. Do you realize as a Christ follower and in Christ, you are not a victim. You're victorious. You're, you're living that new life. But children 
are susceptible to all kinds of different ideas. Immature people are susceptible to all kinds of different ideas. And if Satan can walk you out of the cross and walk you out of Christ and walk you into a deception, he's got you. And you're defeated. But one of the things that Paul says, he says, as you've received Christ, Jesus is Lord, you also receive his teaching. He says, well, how did you receive Christ? By the hearing of God's word. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes by hearing and the hearing by the word of Christ. Okay, so let's put it together then. How did you receive Christ? By the hearing of God's word. Now I'm saved. How are you going to grow in Christ? By the hearing of God's word. So the one that says, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, is deceived. You've got to go to a church that's teaching the Word of God to learn. You've got to read the Bible to learn. You've got to be in Bible study to learn. You've got to be with other Christians to learn and hear the Word of God within this. And this idea of receiving is, is the idea of teaching. And Paul reminds the church that they were wandering away from the truth. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15.3, it says, For I deliver to you the first importance that is also I've received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He comes back to What I get, I give to you. Most of you guys don't know. Some of you do. In order for me to put together a Bible study, whether it's a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, I've got to put time in. I spend probably about 15 to 16 hours in prepping for a Sunday morning service. I spend about 8 hours or so prepping for a Wednesday night service. Am I giving you my good ideas? God forbid. I should be giving you the Word of God, and I spend time with the Word of God, and then give you. As I received, I give it to you. As you receive, you give it to somebody else. Mine out the riches and the glory and the wisdom of God's Word, and give it to somebody. Anybody that will listen. Why? So they'll know the greatness of God within this. And you've got to be watching out for those false teachers. Why do I need to know the Word of God? So I can see who the ones are that are trying to, as he says, take captive the simple ones through philosophy and empty deception or traditions of men or elementary principles. What was the things that Gnostics were doing? They had all this, this really weird theology. If you study God's Word well enough, and when somebody comes up with, with a heresy, you should be able to look at it and go, that's not right. You should be able to know that and be firm in it. Not only should you know the truth, but you should walk in the truth. Notice he says in 6 and 7 that we should walk in him just the way that you were instructed, which results in a life overflowing with thanksgiving. You learn, you do you rejoice, then repeat. Learn, do, rejoice, then repeat. Learn, do, rejoice. And then you'll have victory within that. There's a couple of seasoned saints that, that attend here that I love. They've been, they've been Christians longer than I've been alive. And you know, when they go through trials, they're just like steady Eddie. They're just flowing Why? Because they're in the Word of God. I know a guy right now that, that is just struggling to get air. You know what he's doing? 
It's been reported to me that he has a stack of books with the Bible and study material sitting next to his chair. He can't really come out and come to church anymore, but is he still learning? Absolutely. You say, well, why is he still learning? Because it's the breath that he breathes. It's the breath that he breathes. When you breathe in the Word of God, you breathe out the righteousness of God. And that's the point, is, is it translates to your lifestyle. Paul goes on in laying out this, this theology of salvation, of living this fulfilled life. And, and how do you live a fulfilled life? You look at verses uh, 8 to 14. He says, see that no one takes you captive. Well, how do I live this fulfilled life? We find our life in Him, in the fullness of Him that dwells within the bodily form. We need to push away from those that want to attack us. We have to be aware of, and, and it's an imperative, beware of the bondage of hollow and deceptive philosophy. We have to be aware of the bondage of tradition. One of the problems that, that Paul struggled with, with the tradition, was this idea of the Jews coming in and saying, you have to uh, be circumcised to be saved. That was Jewish tradition. Why would you tell a Gentile that you have to, that you have to go under the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision when you're not under that covenant? Well, because we've always done it that way. That would be like somebody saying, you know, if you really want to be a Christian, you have to wear a suit on Sundays. Would that fly? Not for me. I wear a suit when I marry him, and I wear a suit when I bury him. That's tradition. It's not a condition of salvation. It's a tradition of man. And there's nothing wrong with traditions. But when traditions are worshipped more than God, now we got a problem. Whatever that tradition is. When a tradition is worshipped more than God, we got a problem. When you start using tradition as a form of bondage against other people, we have a problem. Why? Because you worship that tradition more. Isaiah 29, 13 says this. And then the Lord will say, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lips of service, but, is one of those bad buts, but they remove their hearts from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Why do you do what you do? Because I've always done it that way. It doesn't fly with God. It, it's not something by rote. The Gnostics were these false teachers attacking the personal work of Jesus. And their theology and, and, and moving away from it. And it was robbing people of the eternal hope. There was a, the, a heresy called the Colossian heresy. And it was full of human tradition, legalism, and mysticism. Do you know today it's estimated that in Christianity is the world's largest religion but it's among 4,200 other religions. 4,200 other religions. So when you talk with somebody, you say, well, what religion are you? Well, I'm Christian. What does that really mean? In this day and age, what does it mean if someone calls himself a Christian? Because you can call yourself a Christian this or a Christian that or a Christian or whatever. It's lost its meaning. I would rather call us Christ followers. Because the word Christian has lost all value. It's been diluted. 
A Christ follower holds on to the faith according to Christ. Paul would go on and, and teach four foundational truths that would provide fulfillment. You want to fulfill fulfilled life? Start with this. Make the source of your life God. You want a fulfilled life? You want to be happy? Make God the source of your life. He's got the power to say, verses 9 through 10, in Him is all the fullness. And in Him you've been made complete. If God is the source of your life, number one, you're going to be grounded and start to find happiness. Not in human philosophy. Second, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 says, But a natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand because they're spiritually appraised. Get rid of your ideas and just center everything on God. Be complete in God. Second, if God is the source of your life, then Jesus is the power to remodel your life. Do you follow? If God is the source of your life, the second element to a fulfilled life, Jesus is the power to remodel your life. That's why we use the term Christ-like. Because my life is in Him. How is my, my life remodeled? I'm being remodeled to look like Jesus. I am being what? Conformed to His image. Within that. The old man is dying. The new man is becoming. I'm being conformed. Not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how do we do that? Paul would say, you circumcise your heart. You cut away the old. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. He says, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to, to do this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and so that you may what? Live. You're being remodeled by the power of Jesus. Third, that in Jesus, that old nature has been buried and given new life. If I'm being remodeled, then I have to consider my old life dead. You want to live a fulfilled life? Leave the old man in the tomb. Consider that old part dead. And he uses the illustration of baptism. So we are baptized in Christ. We're considering that old man dead through baptism and identifying with Jesus alive. Fourth, in Jesus the dead of sin have been nailed to the cross. You want to live a fulfilled life? Understand this. Your sin is gone. It's nailed at the cross. It is no longer relevant to your life. It is paid for. When Jesus said to tell us die, it is finished. It was what? Finished. God is the source of your life. In Christ, we have the power for it to be changed and be remodeled in that. That old nature is being cut away and we need to consider those sins nailed to the cross. Then you'll be able to live that fulfilled life. But every time you start thinking about what a dirty, rotten sinner you are, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're going back to the cross and you're, you're, you're saying, well, Jesus, you weren't enough. Your death wasn't enough. What are, you, what are you doing? When you go back and you start living like the world and you say, well, Jesus, you're not enough. I need some of the world on me. You're not going to have happiness. You're not going to have that fulfilled life. Jesus did something at the cross, verse 15. That was amazing. You know what he did? 
He disarmed all of your enemies. Look at what verse 15 says. He says, And when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them having, note, triumphed over them through him. Jesus at the cross and at the tomb disarmed everybody that was your enemy. They have absolutely no power over you. None. In fact, he shamed them. Satan thought he would win at the cross, didn't he? He thought he'd win. Good. I'm going to kill Jesus. He's dead. He's in the tomb. You can imagine all of hell breaking loose until the tomb broke loose. And Satan went, this isn't good. I'm defeated. Done. All of the authorities, all of the enemies, all of those that thought that they had victory over you were defeated. Death. Defeated. Do you realize death is defeated? In Christ, you cannot die. Oh yeah, the body will go away, but you cannot die. Defeated. Satan and his power to control you at the cross, defeated. He cannot control you. The world system that tries to control you has no power over you. Oh yeah, they might fire you. They might put you out on the street. But all of that is just temporal. Throw you in prison. All of it is just temporal. They cannot touch your eternity. The cross removes all of the authorities, sin, sorrow, death, suffering. And Satan was humiliated in the end. So what should you do? Live to that high calling. Verses 16 all the way through the rest of the chapter, we'll get through it, says this. Therefore, no one is to act as your judges in regard to a food or drink or respect or festival. Why? They have no power over you. And the festival of the new moon and the Sabbath. These things which are mere shadows of what are to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you. Why? Because they have no power over you. And you of your prize in delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels and taking a stand on visions. And he has seen inflated without cause by the fleshly mind. And not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grow together, which is from God. If you have died with Christ, and you have, to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to the decrees, such as do not handle, or do not taste, or do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish, in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion, self-abasement, severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, and you have, in the same way you died with Him, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also 
be revealed with Him in glory. How does Paul finish this? Live according to your high calling. Why? Because they were defeated. Now the problem is these guys were coming in and saying, well, you've you got to abide by the religious laws. and You've got, you got to do the Sabbath this way. and You've got to not eat food. And you've got to do all these other things. And Paul says, hogwash. They have no power over you within this. You have to reject the legalist and as your judge. The legalist is not your judge. The legalist wants to put you into condemnation. And the legalist usually will have a strong personality and belief and say, you have to do it this way. Hogwash. You don't answer to them. They have no power over you. Believers in the church need to resist the attitude of the legalist and those that are coming in. Why? Because legalism is bondage and it's contrary to freedom and we are free in Christ. Amen? Do not, do not give authority to anybody but God. Do not give yourself into condemnation when you don't have to because you've been set free. These, as, as Paul went through this list of these Gnostic and, and, and religious teachings and these battles that were there about observing a diet or observing a holiday or all of these things or clean or unclean within this, whether it was the Jews or the Gnostics. When you do that, when you give in to somebody controlling you, you give up freedom. And that freedom is in Christ. How should you live? Live in freedom as one who is seated with Christ. Because if you died with Him and you did, then you also live with Him. And where is Christ seated? In heaven. Within this. And so Paul goes on and he just basically says, reject the myths because we are there. Consider ourselves dead to the things of the world. If somebody comes up to you and they try to lay something on you, that is of the world or of a man-made religion or a condemnation, reject it. But land at the place where you realize that you are already seated and complete in Christ. And note, in verse 4 of chapter 3, says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. When is it all going to come together? When you see Jesus. Whether Jesus comes back or you go to see Him. It's all going to come together. But till then, live in victory. Do not live defeated. Mine out the riches of Christ. Dig up the treasures that is in God's Word. And when the world comes pushing in or pressing in, Push back with the Word of God. Say, no, that's not what my God says. That's not who I am in Christ. I've been rewarded with eternal life. I've been given an eternal hope. A hope that will carry me through the darkest of the days. And I look forward to seeing my Savior. May I see Him soon. Let's pray. God, I thank You. I thank You for that, that blessed hope, that resurrection of life that You've given to us. That, God, You are the source of our life. That, Lord Jesus, we're being remodeled into Your image. That, Lord Jesus, You're cutting away the old sections of our flesh. And that we have a new life in You that cannot be touched or taken away. 
My life is from above. I'm working below until I fully enter into that life from above. God, I pray that we would be so heavenly minded that the world has no handle on us at all. And may we live as a new creation in Christ. I thank you for all that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and we'll close. You unravel me with a melody. You surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone I'm no longer a slave to fear I am a child of God I'm no longer a slave child of God From my mother's womb you have chosen me love has called my name I've been born again into your family your blood flows through my veins I'm no longer safe to fear I am a child of God I'm no longer a slave to fear I Set on things above 
be reminded that we are in you because of our new life in you as we go about our week. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Praise Jesus. Have a good rest of your week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.